Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. Today, we have a special guest, former CIA operations officer, Brian Dean Wright. You're also the host of The Wright Report. That's it. That's yeah. it, man. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah. Uh, so let's get let's start with the background. Where, where, where are you from? How'd you get into the government service? Yeah, so I'll tell you, I grew up in a very small town in uh, eastern Oregon and then uh, north central Idaho, Lewiston. In fact, uh, mm. folks who know Evan Hafer might know uh, Lewiston, Idaho. That's uh, where uh, I'm, you know, grew up with that guy. So then I, I left and I went to college uh, at Gonzaga University. I, I had this bug for international affairs, wanted to travel the world. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to I want to jump ship and uh, leave the Northwest and uh, apply to the CIA. So I did, and they accepted me. And then I was off to the races, and that was about gosh, two months after 9-11. So that was a, a wild time for those of us who remember, remember those early days, a lot of very intense um, training, of course, and then getting out of the field and, and doing the, the, the work. So that was the, the beginning, the genesis of, of getting into intel work and military service. And then I left in, in uh, 2000 and uh, late 15 and uh, tried to, well, no longer avoid cameras and I would get in front of them, which mm -hmm. was a really strange transition. But it's it's been about seven years or so since then. Yeah. So, um, what I, it, you you were uh, re recruited kind of out of uh, college, which is you know pretty common. Uh, obviously, they want to get you before anybody else gives you some bad habits and shit. But um, <laughs> what what kind of uh, assumptions did you have about what it was going to be like, and how wrong were you about all those things? Man, right? So everybody thinks about uh, probably military service or intel, like the movies, right? Mm -hmm. In my case, James Bond and Jason Bourne and those guys. And, you know, there were shades of that that, that were true. Uh, but for the most part, that wasn't it. It was uh, a lot of getting out there and, and uh, you know, not blowing up uh, stuff or shooting people or, uh, or you know, dating fast women. It was, it was just about meetings and paperwork and a bunch of baloney with a burst of really intense and, and amazing activity. Um, that, that part was a lot less uh, sexy, but it was, it was important. You know, that was the, the spade work that you would do to make sure that when you met an agent, that you got there safe, that you had no surveillance, um, mm. that they were getting there safe. It was all the kind of the administrative stuff that wasn't fun, but it's really, really important to conducting safe operations. Yeah. There's nothing particularly sexy about doing two or three SDRs to get somewhere just so you don't, so you can have a fucking private meeting for once in your life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In some places, as you know, I mean, gosh, you're, you're doing three, five, 12 hour SDRs mm. and it's like, ah, oh, this is, this is not what I signed up for. Oh man. But that's the same, uh, you know, on a military deployment, people think that we're just constantly running around shooting shit. Um, and the reality is it's like 99 point seven percent boring yeah you know what i mean like yeah. you're cutting grass or doing stupid shit or just sitting around watching paint dry and then all of a sudden everything right. goes haywire you're, you're lifting for the sixth time yeah, yeah. you know you talk to guys uh, who are cops firefighters that they, they oftentimes describe it the same way right it's it's just these moments of intense uh you know bursts of um you know, need demand that, that are pushed on you and then yeah, you you roll okay uh, it, it's, I, I think it's probably the same for anybody, right? Maybe, uh, police though, I think the police are a little bit different because they are, when you're actually on the job, you're almost in constant, under constant threat, right? And it isn't necessarily Very the true. same, I guess to some degree, if you're on 
out in the city on a fob or on a cop and not a fob, big fob or something like that. Maybe that's that's yeah, still the case. Sure. But when we were on the cop, when we were in our little building there, I felt relatively safe. You know, I mean, mortars yeah. are coming in, but who cares, you know. Uh, but cops, like, you're just out there exposed all the time. Firefighters are sleeping most of the time, right, and cooking and dinner <laughs> for each other and, and watching each other shower, I think is what they do. But um, I, I'm pretty sure. I thought you were going to say braid each other's hair, which, you know. Well, same, yeah, other. basically the same, yeah. <laughs> um, so tell, let, let's let's uh, dig into some more background. What is, uh, you, your, your position at the agency was operations officer. Tell people what that means, because yeah. I don't know that people really know any yeah. of the jobs. I mean, they know analyst and maybe case officer, but I don't think they know what a lot of this stuff means. Yeah. So look, you know, if you look at the kind of the equivalent of the movies, right? So James Bond had Q, the character who did all the gadgetry, right? So that is one directorate or mission center. Those are the people who deal with all the gadgetry and inventions and such. Then you have all the analysts, right? Who They get the information from open source, that is newspapers, TVs, whatever, or of course, intelligence, whether that be from the sky with satellites or in other words, SIGINT, or of course, uh, you know, you've got uh, guys like me, uh, human officers would go out and recruit human spies and uh, grab those secrets and then relay those back to Washington. So folks like me, do you hear different words used? It's case officer, operations officer. Sometimes people will kind of muddle all those words, words rather they'll, they'll say like, you know, spy or agent. And really the guys who are the spies are the people that you recruit. Those are the informants, right? Those are the agents. But nevertheless, um, that's kind of how things are divvied up. You got a lot of people back in headquarters doing the gadgetry, the analysis. And then you've got the guys who are recruiting spies and stealing secrets. And that was uh, the guy that uh, that's that was a role that I had. And how did you like it? I mean, I'm sure like any other like we just discussed, a lot of it's boring. But yeah. there's, there are parts that make some of these jobs worthwhile. Man, I'll tell you, I, I had a blast. I love doing it um, because you know, one of the, the, the keys of being, I think, a, a good case officer or operations officer is you have to have this relentless curiosity to just go out in the world, explore, meet people, be fascinated by cultures, be interested in people. And, you know, as much as I think over time, most human guys or intel guys are like, ah, I'm, I hate people. I'm tired of them. Uh, there is some, there's a bug that most of us have. Like, I really enjoy just being out there. Um, and then there, there really was the, the challenge of, um, of the recruitment, right, of moving somebody from a place of I would never spy for the, uh, the Americans but to you bet I want to and I'm fired up to do mm. so. That process to get somebody there can be really, really fun, uh, super exciting, and it's because it's a challenge, right? It's uh, I suppose in the dating world, you know, it's trying to get that yes mm -hmm. for the first time. Uh, so I, I, I love that part, man. That that was a blast. And what, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what made you decide to get out? Yeah, so uh, 2015 uh, was I think a big year for me. So I just decided, uh, you know, as I was surrounded by um, really a change of mission. Right. So for those of us who are old enough, we remember those very early days in the early 2000s, just after 9-11. And it was mission focused. We were all in it. Didn't matter who you are. You were there for really one reason. That was to, to defend the country and figure out who the hell just hit us and strike back. So bureaucratically speaking, that meant that operations happened pretty quickly. We got yes more than we got no. We were moving. Over the next you know, 10, 15 years, that changed. We got more no's than yeses. People were there for more bureaucratic baloney reasons, for pride, for ego. And so I just started to experience a lot more of that. It was no longer fun, but, but I'll tell you that the straw that kind of broke the camel's back was I was doing some, how shall I say this? Um, I was taking a look at some of our very sensitive programs, covert action operations, and deciding and, and helping the operators who were managing these, uh, are they working? Are they effective? 
And if they aren't, then let's talk about that and let's find a way to fix it or shut everything down. But if they are working, that's great. Let's talk to Congress about how awesome this is going. And the, the National Security Council, the White House needs to know this great story. Well, what I found was in that last year or so, a lot of the operators did not want to admit that their stuff was junk. There was a lot of junk. And they were telling downtown Capitol Hill, the, the NSC, that their junk was actually really great stuff. And I was like, all right, I, nobody wants to be playing the game of you know musical chairs and the music shops and have a chair. Right. Which is really operationally what was happening at that point. They'd inherited some junk and they're like, man, I'm out of here in like two years. Mm. I'm not I'm not pointing out that this thing is busted. I'm just going to continue to play on and then I'm out. Uh, and so I was the guy who was delivering bad news. It was like, all right, we we, we got to stop this thing. And uh, that process of seeing that people didn't want to do that, that they would rather bury stuff that was wrong. Um, it just was like, all right, I'm, I, I can't handle the bureaucratic stuff, all the no's operationally and then people who were trying to bury bad work just couldn't do it anymore yeah we uh in in the ic you, it, there's this phrase called garbage in garbage out right like if you're man if you're if your methodology on the front end is bad it doesn't matter how good your analysis is you're fucked i mean there's nothing exactly you can do with that. exactly brother that's, and, and i'll tell you that that's really uh something that i don't think a lot of either folks in the media or certainly just average americans out there understand is that if we bring, that is to say collectors, you bring in garbage and you give that to the analyst and you don't understand that you have garbage, if you don't understand you haven't done all the vetting of your sources, you haven't vetted the information properly and you're putting forward garbage, well, that influences policymakers to make really stupid choices that end up costing a truckload of money or, God forbid, end up costing the lives of you know folks in the military, the intel community. It's a disaster. So it really is important to have good people out in the field doing the right thing, doing the hard work. It ain't sexy sometimes vetting your sources and the information, but when you start getting this culture of, of just laziness and uh, you know, don't, you know, not wanting to admit fault or not wanting to admit that they got garbage, huge ramifications that we all pay for. Yeah, like uh, Curveball, for example, right? Single Such source, single source <laughs> informant. That turned out to be like nothing. I think it was nobody. It, it's like uh, fabricator. It, it's like three people trying to do a deal, but one uh, doesn't know about the other two, right? So you're like, "Hey, I need to mm -hmm. buy. I, I need this thing from you. Can you get it for me?" And it's yeah. like, uh, uh, "Yeah, I'll get it." And he's planning on getting it from the other guy, but the third guy is planning on getting it from the original guy who needed it. Right. So it's just like this big, stupid circle of, of right. no, there's nothing there. Right. I mean, right. God. And, and this one led to, um, you know, th this one was pretty bad. Th this is a this is yeah. a this is a, a war in Iraq. I don't know if people are familiar with this guy, but Curveball, the internal source that everybody referred to uh, as far as weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was this person. And it turns out he's fucking nobody. Right. I mean, had no yeah. credible intelligence. And, and can you you were that that was just after you uh, or just before rather you uh, joined the agency i yeah, assume that people i mean and i don't know how widely known it was but the dossier was published i think in september of 2022 or 2002 when they were trying to push into iraq right then and uh yeah. can you do you know anything about how that was going through because single source information is is usually like okay it's like wikipedia like all right that's interesting let me go find some actual facts now right right well, right. So, look, as you know, and probably folks who are listening know and, and watching know, you can have a single source who is giving you incredible information, mm. highly accurate, 
But that person better have been on the books for a long time or they better be in a position where they can legitimately have that kind of incredible access. But you have got to do some serious vetting of that person before you really put high confidence in what they're giving you. So in this case, that guy was not thoughtfully vetted. His information wasn't thoughtfully vetted. It's because you had people in the White House and the NSC who wanted that information to be true so badly that they just ignored a lot of the junk, right? Or the, a lot of the, the bad parts of that case. So I'll tell you, I did work with some of the um, the officers, especially the analysts who used Kerbal's information to help justify the war. And I will tell you, years later, they live with that legacy and they all are like, they feel like they were pushed, bamboozled, uh, you know, in a range of different emotions, but it's something that they have profound regret over, you know, and that's nice and all to have regret when what your, your work did knocked over a country and killed a lot of people. Jeez. Uh, but the point is that there are a lot of folks, I think, in the intel community who still remember that case and would and should for years to come. And, and actually, I think that we're probably going to have more curveballs, but not because of political interference or people getting lazy, but because of technology, artificial intelligence, especially. Mm-hmm. There's this huge field that I would love that we can dig into that. But man, that whole field of intel right now it is going through massive changes about whether or not we can trust that information, how much of it we can trust. Because, boy, if we start getting into wars based on stuff that hasn't thoughtfully been checked out from an AI perspective, making sure we're not engaging in deep fake baloney or our officers haven't been under surveillance the whole time, no matter how many SDRs they've done, like, it's a big deal. It is, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the future of SIGINT is because, you know, you. I mean, it in the, in the early days, it was just uh, a handshake agreement with the telecommunications industry, and then it became Echelon, right? later yeah. on with this mass data collection and it's only grown uh, more complex from there. But now the ability on the creator side to match what, you know, S and T is able to do is pretty fucked up. I mean, that's not a great situation. Mm-hmm. And look, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't like the idea of the government having a monopoly on anything, whether it's intelligence or, or mm-hmm. violence or anything like that. I think that's bad for a Republic, but it certainly makes uh Sigan's job quite a bit more, it, it makes S and T's job, uh, uh, science and tech at, at the agency, quite a bit more difficult. You know what I mean? And it's the same. Yeah. Like we, it, it's interesting how it's gone over the years too, because we got super sophisticated with SIGINT. We kind of let our our skills lapse to some degree with human uh, over the time, mm-hmm. and we paid dearly for that because the enemy was was. Yeah perfectly fine with living in caves and passing handwritten notes to each other. And now yeah. we're, we're circling back to this point where uh, there's a lot of egalitarianism in the technology. Uh, so I, right. I, I'm not really sure what, what's going to happen moving forward. I mean, it's certainly a risk. Yeah, look, I, I think over the past 20 years, what uh, most folks in the IC have seen is you, you nailed it. More and more countries uh, can grab tech that can do more and more advanced things that 30, 40 years ago, only we or maybe the Soviets or others could have done. So that's a huge change uh, with, with, you know, uh, gosh, pieces of tech that you can grab on the commercial side, things like Stingray, those kinds of systems. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's some really good stuff out there that you can use if you're Malawi and you can catch, you know, even some of the best trained spies out there, you know, case officers, you can, you can find those guys. And, and I'll tell you, one of the big things is through um, the commercial sector, through digital exhaust. That's a, something I talk a lot about on my podcast. The various things we, we chat about, what is this idea of digital exhaust and how can it be used against you? 
Well, commercially, or I guess from an average consumer's perspective, they can know exactly who you've been, mm-hmm. who you are, and then they can predict who you're going to be and where you're going to be, whether it be through your cell phone you know, patterns or your purchasing patterns or you know, all of those kinds of uh, things through your digital exhaust. From a human perspective, boy, if that's true on just the average consumer side, if I can figure out, generally speaking, when you tend to do your operations, whether it be at night, on the mm. weekends, or every Thursday, every third Thursday or something, now we got a serious problem from a counterintelligence perspective. Those cases get wrapped up. Or I think most horrifically, if I were a president or if I were a leader, I may be getting that garbage intel with my you know, case officer, my CIA guy meeting the asset. And they don't know that the case is blown because technology has blown that for uh, the officer, even though they've done everything they were trained to do. Now, suddenly, the information is actually disinformation. They're being, mm. It's being fed to the CIA or whomever. And now we got a problem from a policy perspective. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think human is got a lot of threats facing it. And I know that, that the, the IC is aware of it. I don't know that they come up with great answers globally. And I'm talking to the Russians, the French, the Brits, us. Everybody is wrestling with this. And I don't know that anybody has a great cons- uh, you know, uh, solution. Right now, it's, it's a pretty good time to be on the defense. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, it, it's yeah, it's really interesting. I, the, some of this tech too, um, surveillance wise, like uh, I'm not sure that the ordinary citizen knows what uh, gate recognition is and stuff like that. Yeah, I right. mean, if you, so so you everybody knows now that you can take um, uh, that that the face, your your bone structure in your face from the eyebrow down to the chin can identify you just as readily as a fingerprint and also more are, are better than your iris, right? So it's it's even more uh, uh, accurate than your eyeball now. Um, but what they don't know about is that your the way that you walk is also uh, very, very unique to you, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you can, there are a couple of delimiters like race, height, things like that, and gender. And then you just, you, you remove those obstacles and then you put in a gate t- uh, recognition tech. And if you're in a high, if you're in a heavy surveillance area, like a major city or something like that, you better change the way you walk if you're trying to do an SDR because they can just pick you up on the freaking drone at this point, right? Right. Yeah. And then the, the question becomes, you know, how do you change your gait? There are different ways you can try to do that. But then how consistent is that new gait? And is that <laughs> lack of consistency odd? Because mm-hmm. you have a pattern. So if they're able to recognize your face and suddenly you have a new gate, I mean, there are so many CI challenges right now because of cameras, you, the ubiquitous nature of, of cameras. My God, I think China's number one, certainly, but it's everywhere. And with this AI tech, you can predict then people what they normally do and then what they're now doing sort of out of pattern. There's a really interesting case about a year ago of a guy who was driving from Massachusetts to New York and they arrested him, not because he was speeding or anything, but because the pattern of his car through all the cameras from Massachusetts down matched what drug mules usually use and how they usually operate on the roads. So they had, they had no idea who the guy was inside. It was just the car and how it maneuvered. So they pulled him over, and I'm not sure legally how they were able to get away with this, but nevertheless, they pulled him out of the car, and sure enough, the dude had drugs in his car. 35 grand, he had a number of, of uh, crack cocaine. He had a bunch of it anyway, some guns. So it worked. Uh, but the point is, from an, a security perspective, that should make a lot of us nervous from a liberty perspective. Second, from a human perspective, holy smokes, if they have a sense of what SDRs cl- classically look like, which they do, or even our sort of newfangled SDRs that we're coming up with, I'm not, I'm not so sure that some of these AI systems can't just poke a quick hole right through that stuff. Yeah, especially now. I mean, there's there's been developments recently um, 
a new uh, a new metal or it, it's it's a composite alloy basically, but for um, the way it holds a current. I don't know if you're tracking on this, but hmm. um, <clears throat> quantum computing is about to get reduced down to the size of your laptop, basically, right? Okay. Um, and and not just the size, but also at room temperature, right? So quantum computers are very unstable, generally speaking, meaning uh, not just that they have to stay at near sub or uh, near absolute zero temps, but they also typically um, are not very resistant to vibration. So if you just had it lying on the desk here and your knee bumped it, that thing's fucked, right? It's just not gonna, yeah. it, whatever operation it was trying to do, it's not gonna work. Um, yeah. this, this new tech allegedly sometime in the next six to 12 months is gonna stabilize all that stuff. Now we'll see if it actually happens or not, right? But yeah. you know something that that processes in qubits and not bytes is yeah, right. I, I don't know how to explain that to the uninitiated, but it's like it, it is. It, it's like going from from amoeba to to human being in a in an instant, right? That's essentially yeah. the the how, how it goes. Well, and I don't know what we're gonna do about that, if anything, right? I don't know if you can do anything about that. Yeah. So to capture kind of the, I think the idea of how that would look. Imagine trying to walk across the country versus being in a jet, right? That's the difference. I mean, the the, the scale, the, the speed of, the, of those differences, even that doesn't fully capture it. But yeah, I think one of the, the big concerns that a lot of guys have had for years now is they've seen this quantum computer coming, that it can do a hell of a lot more, a lot faster than anything we could even imagine um, in a way that we don't quite understand, but nevertheless, it works. So what about all those encrypted pieces of, of uh, cable traffic, for instance, from the field back mm -hmm. to headquarters at CIA, just taking human. Well, that's all been very, very carefully encrypted. Well, suddenly, if you've got the, an adversary, Russia, China, et cetera, who's got one of these computers that can quickly unpack all that encryption and break all of our cases, holy smokes, we are toast. There are a lot of guys out there who are going to be dead real quick, or those cases are going to be blown and all the intel that from that point forward, if we find out that the Chinese and Russians can do it, all that intel is compromised. So you're going to have to, to switch to offline systems that has its own signature from a CI perspective. So again, man, this is not like the 1940s and 50s and 60s where you could do, you know, print out some fake, fake library card and be like, I'm Ron Johnson. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, no, yeah. Things, are, things are so different. Any human is really tough. Yeah, there's no more. I'm a businessman from Ohio on vacation in Shanghai. Right. That bullshit is not going to fly anymore. That's um, right. And, and honestly, brother, it hasn't for 20 years. Yeah, the yeah, Intel yeah. community has just, it's been slow to, to catch up. I think anybody who knows anything about that world knows that's true. Mm. The bureaucracy gets a little bit scared when they have to do things differently. And so it's just, let's pretend like the world isn't real and just keep doing stuff like we did back in the 90s and 80s. Yeah. You, would okay. think, you would think in, um, there would be a couple of, uh, a couple of areas that not wouldn't necessarily be immune to bureaucracy, but that we would go out of our way to try to limit bureaucracy, like the military yeah. and the intelligence community would be two of those things. I understand we want to have, yeah. we want to maintain civilian control of things. We want to make sure that people are doing the right thing and not driving us in the wrong direction. But, um, you know, the, as large as the U.S. is, we're a battleship at this point. And, it, you know, if, there's a reason that you have fighters on board. There's a reason that you have uh, Bozeman's or, or yeah, gunner, gunner's mates and shit like that on board. Because you turn, if you turn slow, then you're, you're under threat all the time, right? Like if you can't move quickly. Yeah. As you still, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me for it to behave that way. But it's like, 
you know, if you read the uh, the after action reports from 9-11, you'll see that there was a FBI agent in Phoenix that wrote a report two weeks earlier that said fucking Muslims are about to fly some planes into buildings. We need to be on the lookout. Mm. But it never mm-hmm. got elevated, right? Because there was no time for yeah. it to get elevated. That shit can't happen. Well, so, you know, look, I think there are two things. One, that the, the innate nature of bureaucracies are, are slow, right? Uh, you would hope that they can move quickly. But uh, as you plus up with staff, you have more and more layers where information and decisions have to go through. That's going to necessarily slow things down. So you're right that there's a, a pretty strong argument to be made that maybe we've gotten too big and too bloated. Uh, probably a number of different arguments for that. Um, but let's let's pare back. Um, but I'll tell you, I think that one of the, the second things is that, that I, part of the reason why I left, getting back to your question, mm. is when people lose sight of the fact that they're there for mission, and instead they're there for a salary, when they're there for a nice, comfortable job to work for 20, 25, 30 years, and then they leave, then you start to become incentivized to be very risk averse, to say mm. no to everything, because yes, inherently means we've got to try something different. We've got to try something that could be risky. And if that something bad happens that I don't get my GS 14 or 15 or my sis or whatever it is. And that is now the culture. I think you're going to run that risk irrespective of where you're at in the government. But the further you get away from conflict, uh, from that existential threat. I mean, I, I don't know about you and your career and your life, but I remember those months after nine 11, when I was at CIA headquarters looking up and I saw, you know, a jet flying, man, there was a pucker factor. I'm Mm. like, well, I sure, Hope that one doesn't come down. You know, as they were landing at uh, you know Reagan National Airport, yeah. like when when you've got that kind of threat constantly at your back, you're not worried about your GS-15 or your for your sis. You're worried about keeping yourself safe, the country safe. Well, the further you get from those kinds of, of events, man, the more anxious, yeah, uh, the less sort of concerned you are about mission, and the more you're concerned about saving your backside. And sure, that yeah. I think. Is the, is the moment that we're in personally. Yeah. That's no, it's, it's one of the reasons I got out too. I, I left in late yeah. 2010 because the wars were dying down for the most part at that time. I'm like, I'm not going to go hang out on a lax base in Afghanistan and train police because somebody's going to get fucking fragged, right? That's how it happens. Yeah. You let your guard yeah. down and bad shit happens. But it is the broader, yeah. the broader statement, or I'm sorry, the broader idea brings into debate, you know, things mm-hmm. about, how do we scale up and down during times of conflict and relative peace and stuff like that? Obviously the military and the intelligence community are a, a, a bit different in those two things. They have different jobs. Um, but you know, the way we, and, and it's all very political as well, you know, firing people from their military or government jobs oh, seems yeah. to be kind of, um, taboo for some reason. It's like, well, you're, it was, a, you're, you were serving your country. It's not like they owe you the job. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, how dare you yeah. fight? Like, cut down the military like well are we just going to spend an infinite amount of money just because because we did it before it doesn't make any sense to me right um but that is kind of how it is and you know the department of defense and well it seems like every all of the agencies uh and departments and and federal government that were designed to you know protect us have kind of moved on to a new mission now right which is uh, mm-hmm. to serve w- whatever master they have at the time. Sometimes it is, as you say, uh, just the the bureaucratic drone, right? Just the, the government mm-hmm. drone who's there to collect a paycheck, get 30 years right. and get their 55% retirement or whatever it is, or their top, yeah. top three years or whatever the hell they do now. Yeah, um, right, right. But, <clears throat> you know, some of these agencies 
Um, and the Department of Defense is certainly one of them, and as is the DOJ. And I think the Department of Defense has been like this longer than any of the others, frankly. But the, the DOJ as well have been kind of used to um, extract wealth from the population, right? And then uh, to – and this is the DOD I'm talking about, and they've been doing this for mm -hmm. a long time. I mean, when Dick Cheney was the Secretary of Defense back in the day, we arm, mm -hmm. we arm the fucking Iraqis and the Iranians, right? Watch them fight it out. And then we wait for Iraq to, to invade uh, Kuwait. We knew they were going to, so we could go there and throw our weight around. We, we sent 150,000 people to the desert. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, and then yeah. we didn't finish the job then for the same reason we didn't chase down uh, bin Laden and Tora Bora, right? Because if we did, the, the war would have ended right there. We wouldn't have spent mm. $8 trillion with a T on all this mm. nonsense. So I, I, from your perspective as somebody that's worked in one of these agencies, how do you rein that stuff back in? Because these decisions they're making have nothing to do with national security at all. Yeah. Brother, that is the uh, the big question that we have wrestled with for decades, hasn't it? So I think ultimately what there was a very fascinating poll or study that came out here about a year and a half ago asking people about the war in Ukraine and would they support sending U.S. troops. Mm -hmm. What was really interesting about that poll was the more money that you made and the greater your education, the more likely you were to support sending troops. The, the less amount of money you made every year, the less education you were not interested. Hmm. And the reason for that, uh, at least my takeaway was, yeah, the, the, the rich folks are the folks in power, whether it be in D.C. or otherwise, not especially interested in going off to war to fight. They don't because they won't have to do it, but they're happy to support it in the academic sense. Right. But the folks who actually have to fight it, you know, your, your blue collar workers, your low uh, middle class families, mm -hmm. they're the ones who have to fight it. And so they're less inclined to support these ridiculous wars that they don't think really are in America's interest. So I think that that poll, when I read that, I was like, well, of course, that makes absolutely sense. You know, a tremendous amount of sense. You got people in D.C. and New York and other places where they think about, you know, foreign policy as kind of their realm. And they know better than everybody else. And so they are the puppet masters and they're going to decide which countries should rise, which ones should fall, which kind of ideology is acceptable or not, or which, you know, how much can we really stomach? And then everybody else, the plebes, the, the normals, we have to go out and fight, uh, you know, the, the battles that, that correspond from those big decisions. And, you know, there's a profound uh, challenge, a risk that we've seen, I think, over the past 20 plus years of, of when that happens, whether it be power or money, the people have to fight these wars, they pay the price. And and you know this just as well as I do. You guys come back with their minds scrambled, their bodies busted up if they come back at all. Um, and those families and those communities pay the price. But it, it's not the folks who live in Great Falls, uh, you know, Virginia uh, or out in Langley or McLean. Yeah. Uh, it, it, th those are not the families who generally pay. Um, so how do you fix that? Well, you, boy, that, that really is, I think, voters have to do one of two things. One, when you're looking at your federal representation, you ask those kind of questions and you, you see who gives you the response you feel most comfortable with. And it's tough because those races are usually people with a lot of money who can afford to run in those races. And maybe they're going to be honest with you, maybe they won't. But when we do have voices that we find that we think are authentic, who get it, who are going to ask tough questions, if we have to go to war, it is a just war. Um, if it's not, then they stand up and they're not afraid uh, to, to, to speak truth to power. Then, yeah, we got to support those folks and we got to get ourselves to the polls and we got to get at least two to three other of our friends who never vote or rarely vote to the polls. Right. That's how you change it. And that's why I'm an optimist about the, the future of the country is, you know, if you look at our participation rates, 
they're terrible. Mm. They are terrible. I think the 2020 election was around, and that was a record high, I mm. believe. It was at the 64% or 65 yeah. Well, that means about a third of the country ain't voting. Come on. We, we can fix stuff. The, the country would be radically different if we just got a lot of more people to the polls. Not only ourselves, but we just rally our friends. So that's how I think you, you fix part of the problem. Mm. Um, you just start asking tough questions. And then you get involved locally. There is so much power uh, at, the, at the city level, the, at the city and uh, state level and uh, county level. Man, a lot of those positions can change You know, most of the way that we live every day. Uh, but that federal stuff, I don't know how you get rid of the power and greed uh, that, that is intrinsic to the human condition. So uh, I'll tell you, one of the things that I was taught when I was a young man was uh, by an incredible, incredible high school civics teacher, Earl Trickstead. And he said, y'all, you have to be eternally vigilant. And we have the entire civics class for the rest of that semester focused on this idea of eternal vigilance. But that's how he led the first day of that class. And he had us all by the scruff of our necks emotionally by talking about how important it was to always remain vigilant with your government. And I, I think that that's the ultimate solution. There, there is no finish line to making sure we don't have ding dongs in D.C. and other places who are making bad choices for the rest of us that we have to live with. Yeah, I think it's get, it's getting more obvious that you can't trust, and which is ridiculous that, that, that America, of all places, is having to go through this process because we're kind of founded on this idea. I mean, it's like... It's kind of silly, to be honest, but, uh, you know, more and more Americans are being becoming distrustful of government and institutions. And people think that b- being distrustful of government is, is some somehow means that you just think government, all government is bad. You know what I mean? And that's just mm. not the case. Like ha- having a healthy distrust Amen. of the government is, is that that's how uh, Reagan said, trust, but verify. Right. And look, he was right, pulling right, all kinds right. of fucking weird bullshit in the, in the background anyways. <laughs> but the statement is correct. Um, but it's yeah. it's now a bit more complicated because we've been able to, for a very long time, for the last, let's say, 100 years or so, be able to frame this in a, in a right versus left, a Republican versus Democrat or whatever, right? Yeah. And, and that's a pretty easy argument to make um, for, for people out there who are casual political observers, right? They think, well, I've got... I believe these core things and, and you believe these core things were on different sides. And uh, it's, yeah. it's obviously become more contentious now. But that entire our, our right versus left um, juxtaposition, that's just not how it is anymore. You know, like the people that you're describing who are, uh, you know, kind of tapped out of the system a little bit are such because they just don't have any belief in the system anymore. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, uh, it is. I've been trying to tell people this for fucking 15 years now. Like, forget mm. about the names of your politicians and the names of your political yeah. parties. And describe to me why you don't trust the government. And everybody's got an yeah. answer to that, by the way. Everybody does. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, all right, yeah. cool. So let's make sure that we're watching out for this stuff. Let's make sure that, mm. you know, because let's just say, let's take this one issue, uh, the Ukraine-Russia situation, right? Yeah. There, every, <clears throat> at least once a week, Either Fox or CNN, and not not one or the other, but either either one of them, depending on which week it is, will have an op-ed about why we need to win in Ukraine, right? Why it benefits mm-hmm. the United States to win in Ukraine, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. you know we can debate that all day if you want, but sure, sure, yeah. Most people don't agree. Most American citizens do not agree that we need to be involved over there, um, and. I don't know what you tell a Republican, right? Somebody who's a lifelong Republican, because the vast majority of the Republican establishment supports the shit in Ukraine as well, right? It isn't like mm-hmm. the Democrats being against 
I mean, there were some people like Hillary Clinton, for example, who were super thrilled to go into Iraq, but a lot of Democrats were not thrilled about that. And they <clears> immediately, yeah. um, uh, I think actually, what's her name? Barbara something. The uh, congresswoman from uh, Oakland was the only person to vote no on Iraq authorization. Right, yes. Her um, name was, I'm blanking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barbara yeah. something or other, but... Yeah, yeah. yeah. A- after that, it was like, they, they turned around pretty quickly, but it isn't like that now. Like, you hear a couple of voices in, the, in, yeah. in American mm-hmm. politics saying, hey, we should not be doing this stuff, but it seems like everybody agrees uh, for, the, for the rest of them that, you know, let's just go ahead and do this. So how do you, like... Th- th- this is, this is the, the, tr- the modern political trial for us, right? Um, Mm. to divorce people from this ancient ideology. And look, it it is a symptom of almost every part of government as well. I mean, you went through, in the early 2000s, breaking away from this Cold War era bullshit um, was a big big problem, not just for the intelligence community, but for the military as well, right? Mm. We don't fight like that anymore. We're fighting an insurgency now. This is not the fucking Cold War. We're not fighting a superpower. We like this is a different situation, man. And it took a while uh, to to pivot on that because all of our field grade officers didn't have any combat experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. Except for a couple of guys that were in Panama and then a couple of Vietnam holders, but they were like they're on the way out. So it's like you know how back to the American population. What kind of conversations do we need to fucking have here? So people will stop talking about Republicans and Democrats and start talking about right and fucking wrong. You know what I mean? This episode of Citizen is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran operated and supports America's military, law enforcement, and first responders. Get premium coffee delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, rounds, and delivery schedule anytime you like. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. The best value you're going to get from Black Rifle Coffee is the coffee club. As again, you can choose the roast, whether you're like light, dark, or medium. You can choose the texture. You can choose whether you want uh, ground coffee, whether you want to grind it yourself and get whole bean, or if you use a Keurig and you want the coffee rounds and the delivery schedule with a wide uh, array of options for that. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, use the code CITIZEN, and get 20% off your first order. This episode of Citizen is also brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Right now, Ghostbed is offering 40% off Ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. For everything else, 30% off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. If you get the uh, 40% off deal, if you use the 40% off bundle deal, you're going to get uh, a mattress and all your stuff, your base, your sheets, your pillows, all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month. They've got a zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months, that's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you, works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com for slash drink it, bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best, the mattress protector, the weighted blanket. They have everything you need there. 30% off everything. Use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is 40% off. Yeah, brother, I'll tell you. So so here's one thing that I think about and I actually take um, a degree of comfort in this. Mm. This debate, this conversation, it's not new. If you go back to President Washington's farewell address, 
He said, he warned the nation, look, y'all are slipping into party, to paraphrase, mm. party politics is wrong. The country is slipping into party politics. We, we have to avoid doing that because if you end up embracing parties in a country, then you end up serving the interests of the party and not the interests of the nation. And, and in those early days, the, the, the argument between what became those early parties was, should we have a strong central government or a weak central government? Should we have stronger states' rights or stronger that federal mm. role? And that debate was really important. It was completely fair and super legitimate. We were coming out of the, the off the thumb of the king and the UK and the, you know, obviously the UK and, and and being slaves to the king. Yeah, having a strong central government was something to be uh, fearful of, right? So that argument was fair. Those differences and disagreements were totally fair, and that gave rise in some of those early days to the parties. But Washington was right. And he was right over 200 years ago. Mm. Uh, and I think at some point, sometimes um, that despair that people feel why they might not vote is, oh, it's bad and it's getting worse. No, actually, it's been like this for a long time. We've wrestled with these core issues since the founding of the country. Uh, fake news, right? That whole idea of you know being fed propaganda internally. Well, that's not new either. That was uh, Sam Adams, one of the most, <laughs> you know, well-known names. He was pumping that stuff out in the 1700s against the Brits. Didn't even need to be true. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, then late 1800s, you got Seymour Hearst and other guys mm -hmm. who are pushing out yellow journalism. The point is, like, this country has been through a lot of garbage. And a lot of the stuff that we are experiencing today is pretty similar to the same kind of garbage as before. And what it takes to get through those eras are men and women who stand up and they're committed to the country, to mission. They know all that other stuff, they know it's bad, but they are going to lower their shoulder and they're gonna get involved and they're gonna vote, and they're gonna to try to raise money where they have to to run for office. Uh, or you, you, at the last minute, you have a bunch of brave men and women who stand up to the, the corruption, uh, you know, in the late 1800s and early 1900s against some of the timber interests and mining mm -hmm. interests that owned Washington, D.C. So we've been down dark roads, but we do rally as a general rule, but not just because of magic or luck, but you got people who are like, I'm tired of this shit. We got to fix this. Yeah. Um, and, and that fight uh, is really important um, to, to, to remember. And again, it gets back to this idea of eternal vigilance. We would all love to get to a place where we can be like, okay, we're good now. The democracy, our republic is strong. We can, we can sit back and go to Tahiti and drink or you know, whatever. And it's just, that's, that's not how it works. I wish that were true. There will always be guys like, Aldrich Ames, I don't know if anybody remembers his name back in the 80s and 90s, he worked for the CIA. He, he was actually also working for the Soviets. He was a traitor. When he was arrested, they asked him, why'd you do it? And he said, quote, that uh, he, he uh, decided to stop, uh, spy for the Soviets because I know what's best for the country on foreign policy and I'm going to act on it. Those were his words. So he decided that he was king and he should do what was best for America, to hell with the elections and the politicians and everybody else. He knew what was best, and that was just inside of his heart, inside of the human mind and heart of, of the pride and ego and all the rest of that. There is no finish line stopping that. That's just intrinsic to, to who we are. Mm, yeah, true. Uh, and it, you're right. It's This is not a new phenomenon at all. Um, I will say that, well, so, yeah, Washington was right 200 years ago. Eisenhower was right 70 years ago, right? Um, right. But Marcus Aurelius and Seneca were right 2,000 years ago, and we still – quote unquote, rediscover these guys from right. it, it happens like every 150 years or so where the Stoics all of a sudden like, hey, man, have you guys heard of these people? Like, are you kidding me? 
It's like the founders of Western thought. Are you fucking serious? Uh, and yeah. then we pretend yeah. like it's newfound knowledge. Like, oh, have you heard of this guy? Um, right. I will say this, though. It, it is it, – I, I think that that transition period where people uh, develop I, I, fucking cultural amnesia or something, I don't know what you would call it, mm. happens mm. way faster now. We memory hold things way faster, and I'm sure that's because of the constant deluge of information. But also the yes. risk, the risk yeah. are quite a bit higher now as well. You know what I mean? Mm. Like George Washington had a lot of concerns, but nuclear war wasn't one of them. You know, yeah. so yeah. I, I think uh, uh, I, I'm concerned about riding the ship, but I'm also very concerned about um, insulating us from the future. Right. Like ha mm. having this happen in the future where, you know, maybe something like. Or new technology, AI, or whatever it is, makes this quite a bit more rapid. And and you know the the ability manufacturing consent used to take time, right? And we saw with the last couple of elections that it doesn't take very much time anymore. All it takes yeah. is a little tweak here and a little tweak there in the right jurisdictions, and you can really yeah. fucking capture an institution. Um, and I I think more than just riding the ship now, we need to start thinking about how we're going to insulate ourselves and this is probably the conversation that was happening in beer halls in you know the late part of this uh the 18th century where they're like all right yeah. how can we write this document so that it'll stand the test of time and right. you know uh <laughs> they they had their doubts i mean what it would have been franklin said a republic if you can keep it right like that's what we want that's right and uh yeah. i i wonder about that from from your perspective having worked in these areas and, and now being an analyst of of you know american foreign policy and politics specifically how do we let, let's say we get like everybody starts believing the same facts again we are epistemology all of a sudden returns somehow we'll, yeah. see, we'll see about that but let's just say yeah. for the sake of argument that happens how do you okay. insulate right. something like that from from eroding again or is it even possible do we just have to go through these cycles is it like leaves falling off dying on the ground and you yeah. know returning the soil look I, I think one of the things that you said that um, is so true is this how do you establish those facts how do you make sure that more importantly than just a set of facts because of course we with the scientific inquiry that those often can change right we have a new understanding <clears throat> a new exploration of reality well really that comes down to developing good critical thinkers who are about logic and reason who understand that, that there is no finish line to learning so how do you create a citizenry that embraces being that and I think that that one of the strongest arguments for a good, solid public education or just a strong education system generally for the first 12 years of you know K through 12 uh, education, that is so important. And it's so important to get that right. Um, and, and we can debate about funding, whether or not that matters or if it's you know homeschooling, what the curriculum is or you know, the politics of the teachers and all that kind of stuff. Um, but getting education right for that reason that you just said, which is <clears throat> to make sure that everybody has the ability to use their minds to come to a place where we can agree on facts. Mm. Because once you have those, then at least your your disagreements are a little bit more reasoned. They're a little, they're not so completely unhinged. Uh, it's a, it tends to be faster to get rid of the the silliness. Yeah. Um, federalism makes a lot more sense when you agree on all the facts and you're just like, well, yeah. in our area, it makes more sense to do it this way. So this is what we're going to do. Like, okay, that's a, like, I don't know that I agree with that, but that's a reasonable thing to say. But now we're just yeah. like, in two, we're not even playing the same fucking game anymore. Right. Right. Amen. 
Well, and I'll tell you one, one of the nice things about the way that we are structured with 50 states, with 50 governors who can you know, try different things as their little laboratories, and then mm-hmm. obviously the federal government separately, that, that should, the, the, the bad part of that is you have 50 different states who have very different outcomes that can maybe slow progress. Or if you ever talk to folks from China and their, their government, you know, they argue and celebrate that they can move quickly because it's a one-party system. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to do what they're told or they get schwacked. Well, the disadvantage of that is if you go down the wrong path, the entire country is screwed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States is different than that. We, we are much slower. We've got all these different you know, cooks in the kitchen. Um, but that means that if somebody goes bonkers, well, the whole nation isn't ruined. Right. Um, so, you know, there's no perfect system. you got a bunch of imperfect people. And that's, you know, the founding fathers did a pretty, I think, a pretty brilliant job in coming up with a system that was how do we balance human nature um, and create an imperfect government? But by saying it's imperfect, we are challenging future generations to make it a more perfect union. So, again, in the founding documents, by talking about building a more perfect union, the in, in just absolutely explicit and implicit in that phraseology is there ain't no finish line. Right. There is no point where you can say we're done. You are always going to have to work to make this place a more perfect union. And that means you got to get part of it. You got to make sure you have a citizenry that is educated. You got to work on the issues of corruption. I mean, it never ends. Uh, and so that, that uh, that's not necessarily great news when a lot of us are like, ah, oh, I don't want to keep fighting. Well, I'm sorry. We got to. Just how she goes. Yeah, I wonder if anybody's ever looked into this, but how, how did... I'm sure religion played some role in it, and it's people having, um, I, I think having disparate cultures in a single area is actually beneficial in this way because people feel like they're representing their culture, whatever it happens to be, right? I mean, it's a lot It's a lot easier to go into public wearing a white t-shirt and talk some shit than it is to wear your name on your shirt or your company's name, yeah. and you have to, so some people are motivated by the risk of reprisal, some people are motivated by just, you know, not wanting to look make everyone else look bad or whatever. There's a lot of motivations there. Yeah. But I wonder yeah. what it was in, you know, just human psychology and then and then sociology over time that established honesty and allegiance to the facts as honorable in the first place, right? In, in the mm. same way mm. that it was honorable if your if your neighbor needs something, you help them no matter what your fucking differences are, unless their name is Hatfield or McCoy, I guess. But um, you know, for for the <laughs> right. for the most part that was right. the standard for a very long time. And now it's like yeah. people won't even look each other in the eyes when they're having a conversation, you know? So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I do wonder historically, was it just always one way and lately it's been fucked up or have there have been periods like this before where a certain group of people uh, uh, in a, in a contained area, let's call it a country or state or whatever, just completely yeah. distrust each other. Right. So I would guess a couple of things. First, if we're looking at the American experience and some of our founding fathers, you know, coming out of that era of enlightenment where, you know, they, they were really trying to calm the, the brutish nature of humans and find systems to, to do that. Again, I am way out of my skis on this one. I'm not a, an expert on enlightenment, but um, I, th- those men were well read. They went back in time um, and, and understood which systems tended to be uh, most effective and why um so they put a lot of work in into creating the system that they did but i i think that at the end of the day we are irrespective of that incredible work and what they did tribalism 
is it's kind of another part of the innate human experience. We want to belong to a group of people that we have some degree of, of commonality with because it gives us comfort. It gives us efficiencies. It gives us protection. There are lots of things about tribes that can actually be quite good. The problem is they can obviously be very, very bad as well. And you know that just as well, if not better than I do. So how do you, how do you kind of direct that tribal spirit? And I think in a, in a country that is diverse as, as, as ours is, the, the tribe that is America has to be based on, there has to be something that unites all of us, right? That we're all like, yes, that we all have our differences, but this tribe is awesome and we are in this together. We're rowing in the same direction because of something or series of things. And here's what it is. What I feel is the last 20, 30 years or so, that commonality, that bond has been degraded such that our tribe really is pretty disconnected because there's not much that we really like about each other in many ways. We don't know each other as much as we used to. There's actually some pretty good data that show this going back all the way to the early 1980s and uh, since then of really communities and families breaking down through social groups. So from bowling clubs, Elks clubs, mm. you know, churches, uh, attendance, all that, you would have different kinds of people from different walks of life all getting together, communicating, speaking, talking. And so you didn't have the same degree of disconnectedness that we do today. So I think that that's a part of it, the, the social cohesiveness. We're just not interacting as much. And this virtual bullshit is not the same. Mm. So that, I think, has degraded it, which then offers the solution, trying to reconnect some of those social organizations and encouraging people to do that. And that's another big conversation about how exactly you go about doing it. But then I think that I've seen, and this is just my view, but man, especially in the last 10, 15 years, there has just been this drumbeat of moving from, hey, America's got problems and we need to work together to create a more perfect union. Mm. We've gone from that, which is good and awesome, to actually America's never been great. America sucks. Right. That's the argument that you heard. Actually, one of the most important governors in, in the state, uh, irrespective of his party, but uh, in New York, uh, New York State, he made that argument when there was this debate going on about, you know, the, the political slogan of make America great again. His argument to counter that was America has never been great. Well, when if you really believe that and you start saying that over and over and, and more people of whatever particular tribe start saying that. You have a problem in a country that is as different and diverse as we are, that it, that the one thing, the cohesive thing that brings us all together is that there's a degree of patriotism and we feel like with all of our problems, we're still a pretty awesome place. And that's why so many people try to come here legally and illegally every day. Uh, we're pretty cool. We, we've got a lot of go stuff going for us. If you start challenging that and say, no, actually, this place is a dump. It's never been good. It's awful. Like, man you are you are degrading uh the ability to keep your tribe together your national tribe uh and that's super dangerous when you've got this kind of multi-ethnic society and uh that that's of all the various concerns that's the one that makes me most nervous is a lot of people crapping on the country beyond just the, the good criticisms and hey we need to make this place more perfect it's irredeemable the argument is that we are an irredeemable nation that's mm. the stuff that makes me super nervous yeah it's fucked and you know that that kind of thinking doesn't it, it cannot persist when you're actually in physical contact with people um it is i don't remember who said it it's totally a, true yeah it is true it's, it's i don't remember who said it but it's uh it's hard to hate up close is one of my favorite quotes right yeah i love that because it because it, it really is and you should be very suspicious of people who are trying to keep you apart 
especially yeah. the government wants to start a war on loneliness now, which uh, they haven't won any other wars. So I don't know what the fuck they're going to do there. But um, yeah, well, it's like it's, the I, I can only imagine Well, if it's a politician, I'm sure it's going to be prostitutes for all. Yeah, uh, well, that's what they do. Right. Uh, but this <laughs> I do agree with you there uh, on on both of those points. The first that um, the the narrative has been flipped now to. America's never been good. That's weird, right? It's like, because uh, it, I used to criticize people a lot for just yelling patriotic sayings whenever somebody had something critical to say about the United States. Like a, a firefighter trying to put out a house fire is not intrinsically anti-house. That's a fucking stupid way to think, right? Right, um, right, yeah. But, the, uh, but, but now we've reached this point where, you know, a large swath of the population does believe stuff like that. And, you know, I, I look at remedies to that. And one of them is to get people to care about each other, because that's what we that's what the American population has done best is put aside differences mm. and care for people. Um, yeah. If you look at but before 2015 or so, if you look at global disasters, the only group of the, the only group or organization that uh, gave more money to those causes that happened year after year. Uh, then the federal government of the United States was the citizenry of the United States, more than any European mm. country, uh, anything like that. But it's now being this idea that we take care of each other, I think, is now being, uh, you know, as you know, and, and it's smart, but it's being weaponized against us. Right. Because every every partisan political narrative, regardless of the issue, ultimately comes down to accusing the other side of not taking care of the other side. Right. It's just like, mm. well, if you don't want to give kids quote unquote, gender affirming care, then you don't care about them. You're, you're fine with them committing right, suicide. Right. right? Or, yeah. you know, and it goes both ways as well. Both, both of those, uh, both sides make this kind mm. of, uh, in a, an argument. And I think it is intentionally designed to divide us, frankly, because mm. that, that is like, that's like putting a lock on the medicine chest when there's some Tylenol in there that can cure my headache. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're, right. they're blockading our ability to heal from this bullshit. Yeah. Look, I, I, you're, you're talking about how being divisive can uh, be lucrative. And you're quite right, particularly in the political realm. I mean, there are political consultants who find ways to slice and dice the American uh, you know, people and then pitch different things to those people to get them to the polls. Um, again, that's super dangerous in a multi-ethnic society because you start pitting one group against the other and that's your electoral strategy. Like that's, that's bad. We, we, should, we should not do that. We should do what you're talking about, which is trying to find ways to, to create commonalities. Um, and you do that by celebrating the fact that you're Americans and you talk about that story. You know, being in, in Arizona where I'm at, you know, a lot of folks are, who are coming across the border, you know, Hispanic folks who've been here for 200 plus years. Some have just been here for a day. But, you know, for families who are recent migrants, when I'll have a conversation with them about there's just beyond border issues. And I just start talking about who I am and my family. Mm. Um, and maybe they've been here for 10, 20 years and, and they, you know, their parents came here in a couple of cases uh, illegally, but they're like, they don't have a connection to the country. Mm. And so I'll talk about my family that's been here since the 1600s and coming across the Oregon Trail and, you know, farming and ranching. And, and they get this, and we'll talk about just the creation and the building of the country, good, bad, and ugly, because that process of, of you know, settling these lands, they were not empty. <laughs> there are a lot of people here who were killed or put on reservations. We brought in Irish and Chinese people to build our railroads and, and be in California you know, timber country. And, mm -hmm. and there were, there's a lot of blood spilled over creating this country. So you can talk about both of those things, 
But through those conversations that I've had with some of the more recent migrants, particularly who've come here unlawfully or illegally, man, they're like, I hear this stuff about America being awful and I'm just here for a job or whatever, but you guys have culture. Like there's a rich sense of your history. And it's like, well, yeah, how did you not know that? In some of the cases, you know, these kids are, are going through uh, schools here in the United States. Well, why aren't kids being taught about the, the cool parts of this country? Mm. As well as the warts. But where's the commonality that says, hey, this is where we are all connected. This is, this is the richness of our story. And we can tell it and be proud of it uh, as well as ashamed of, of parts of it. We can learn from that to create that more perfect union. Um, but that spirit of, yes, we're great people, uh, it's just been degraded. And, and I see it in the schools and I see it reflected now, in, in the, particularly folks in, in their 20s, who even at the CIA, man, you have people there who are, are talking about just the most craziest things. They're not there for mission. They think they're there for themselves. You know, they'll, they'll talk about the, the patriarchy and how bad it is and, and, you know, how America has got all these problems. And it's like, you can think that fine, but why the hell are you at a place that's mission focused? Mm. That is fundamentally trying to, about, uh, trying to create a more strong and resolute nation. Um, because you should want that if you're working at a place like the CIA. If not, get out. Like, you don't belong there. So, yeah, it, it's a, it is a scourge, this issue of tribalism, but it's also intrinsic to the human spirit. So we got to, to continue to focus on finding ways to create those good, healthy tribal relations with all of our differences. Mm. And that one tribe aspect is, hey, we are all Americans and this place is awesome, no matter the problems. And if you argue against that as a party or as a person, we need to talk yeah. because that crap will destroy the nation. It and will, yeah. From my mindset, it is yeah. actually. It, it's, it's like a... It's a, a forced or coached nihilism, right? And I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, this this one to me is pretty unique in human history. Like I, I um, there have been periods in human history where uh, you know, I guess internal forces, like let's say the Bolsheviks, right? Um, te yeah. Technically, internal forces have tried to. Uh, attack institutions and, and ultimately because they want to replace them, right? That was the point there. Um, but to have one one side in, in modern politics, not not necessarily just one side, but to have a specific group in modern politics who have this fatalistic, defeatist attitude about not just our present, but about our entire history, is it seems a little ham-handed, frankly. It seems intentional as well. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it, even if it's not, it's fucking ignorant. It's really stupid. Like you don't Amen. improve, you don't improve anything by doing that stuff. It's like, who, yeah. if you, if you, it was like a sports team, you're going to get some depressed mope to come in and give you a pep talk. It's like, ah, oh, <laughs> you know, it's not looking good boys. What well, I don't know what we're going to do here, right. but good luck. I yeah, guess the, the second half is probably going to be shitty. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good luck. Um, and it's, it reminds me, I, I use this, I refer to this a lot, but, um, uh, and he, G.K. Chesterton is like a late, late 19th century uh, English uh, historian wrote about this, but he was he's quoting people from before, but he was talking about what it is exactly that makes a country great, right? And and mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff, we, we know what makes one not great, right? And that is tribalistic infighting and stupid shit like that, and then the d disillusion of integrity and institutions and stuff yeah. like that. But what is it that makes it great? You know, it's not the geography or the buildings or any of that bullshit. He, mm -hmm. Chesterton says, if you want your country to be great, love her like a mother loves her child arbitrarily because it belongs to you. It's yours, right? Because it implies some kind of ownership. And then he, and then he right. goes on to say right. that 
if you go back to the darkest roots of civilization, you will find them knotted around some sacred stone or encircling some sacred well. People first paid honor to the spot and afterwards gained glory for it, right? Mm. Um, men yeah. did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they loved her. And that's mm. like, if I don't like the idea of what, what we might refer to as blind patriotism, like, cause blind patriotism, mm -hmm. I think implies that America's right, no matter what it does. And I think, yeah, right, real, right, I think right. real patriotism is we're going to make America great. We're going to make it great. Right. Through our, mm. through our effort. And well, perfect union. That's I, right. I, yeah, I just don't understand. I don't. I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I don't understand the anti-American, like internal anti-American sentiment, from a perspective of trying to actually improve the country. Like, what do they think that's doing? It's yeah. And I, you don't have to wear rose-colored glasses. You don't have to pretend things are true that are not true. But I, that that, and as a matter of fact, that'll fucking damn, damn you to hell. Like, you'll never fucking succeed that way. But yeah. if, you're, if your supposition is that this has all been horrible and, and it is irreparably broken, we have to start all over again, that's nonsense, right? And there's no way to win that. Yeah. So I don't I, – the motivation from people like that, I don't know if it started with people becoming more nihilistic and it bled through into culture and politics or the reverse happened and we're being programmed to believe this shit. Yeah. Well, look, I don't know what your view is on um, the role of Marxism in some mm. of this stuff, but but I do think that that is at the root of some of this stuff that we're seeing in some of the our politics and some of the activist groups. These are folks who are pretty committed um, to Marx and socialism, and as the Democrat Socialists of America call, advanced socialism, that is communism. Um, so I, I do think at the, at the root of that ideology there is the fundamental belief that, um, again, we could go way down this mm -hmm. rabbit hole, but that um, you know, capitalism is evil and it's the destruction of people and their labor, and uh, it's it's a wild imbalance of power, and that is what the United States was fundamentally founded on, and will always uh, be in its veins unless the Constitution is thrown out, and we completely recreate something new. Well, the way you do that is much like what Mao and others have done around the world is you trash the old stuff, right? You say that the old people and the old values and the old constitution, everything mm. old is bad and we need to get rid of all of it. But I first got to convince you that all the old stuff is bad. So you do that, of course, by saying that America has always been awful. America has never been great. And then you talk about all the terrible things that have happened in the country and all the absolutely vile things that some Americans have done to other Americans. And that's all you talk about. That's all you emphasize. And every time there's something hopeful or good, you always find the bad. That is what, at heart, somebody who's trying to be a revolutionary and replace the current system with something else, that's what they would do. Destroy the old and things that you're proud of, your stability, your family structure, all that stuff. Destroy it, and then you recreate with something brand new. That's how you do it without firing a shot. Mm. And, and I think that that kind of a revolution is something that's pretty clearly stated. There's a brilliant document by the Democratic Socialists of America from 2014, where they lay all of this out. They're very clear what they're wanting to do and how they want, want to create this revolution from a uh, sort of a peaceful perspective. That is to say, without raising an army and marching on the Capitol. Um, and there's, they make the argument that it has to be done because capitalism is evil. And so that's why we need to get, mm. get rid of the golds. So I, I believe that that is a huge part of this. And, and this is not a Republican thing or a conservative thing or any of that kind of stuff. This is, this is just a raw 
understanding of history and of Marxism and what its goal was and is. And if someone says that they were a Marxist or a socialist or a communist, then believe them and understand what their goals are. Uh, and then stuff starts to make a lot more sense mm-hmm. from my perspective. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and one of the one of the biggest examples going on right now that just has people bewildered is um, how we're handling the southern border of the United States right mm. now. I, everybody's got some thoughts on this. Um, uh, Machiavelli said that when when you're kind, when you're supposed to be cruel, you'll end up having to be cruel when you're supposed to be kind. Um, exactly. And uh, you know, watching, I, I hear from border patrol agents all the time about. Um, you know, moms throwing their kids over fences and because it's like, I mean, it's not great. So I, I wonder from your perspective, before we get out of here as a case officer, what are your thoughts on the the border and problems we're creating for ourselves downstream? Not just, not just with regard to, uh, I guess, border security specifically, but, um, you know, there's a lot of other downstream second, third order effects that are going to come about yeah. because of this. Last week, the mayor of New York City sent his staff down to the border to hand out flyers to people on the border saying, please do not come to New York City. Right. If you need any more example in the last week or two of of absolute failure of our border, it would be New York City's mayor, one of the most liberal in the country, going down saying, migrants, stop, don't come here anymore. Look, the, the border isn't functional. But stepping back, let's remember this. Folks are coming to this nation because we have fundamentally law and order, right? They're leaving places that don't. And remember, law and order isn't just the cops on the streets or not a lot of murders. Mm -hmm. It means that there's enough stability in the country that you can create factories and farms, you can build homes, businesses, you have ports that operate, railroads that run. Things are functional because at the very foundation of the nation is law and order. Mm -hmm. So they're fleeing places because they don't have jobs, because there's no law and order, Right. Or because there's murder and crime and all the rest of it. Right. Economic opportunity. Those don't exist where they're from. So they're fleeing it. They're fleeing a lack of law and order. Whether they can articulate that or not, that is fundamentally systemically what they're fleeing. So then they're coming to this country, violating law and order, and they're being incentivized by people to say, come across the border unlawfully and you can stay here for as long as you would like. And we're not going to force you to go to be, you know, go through any vetting process. If you can get here, you can stay here. You can violate from a, a state or a local area, uh, you know, a city perspective. If you can get here, stay here, forget what the federal government says. That very act, doesn't matter your party politics, just thinking about this systemically, by doing that, you're undermining law and order. You're undermining the very thing that ultimately allows your nation to function, the very thing that these people are fleeing, right? They're trying to find more law and order, and you're encouraging them to break it and destroy it to get here. So to me, it is illogical and destructive just at its very heart. And that's why a border is so important. Mm. It's part of that process of deciding who gets to come in, how long they get to stay here. Do they represent the values that you think you need more of in a particular country? There's a very smart reason that you have borders, right? The opponents will, to this will argue, well, actually, human capital can, or I should say a, a cash, money, capital can flow across borders easily. So too should humans. That argument aside, which I don't buy, but the, the, the bottom line is that's why immigration is important. Orders are important because it's about law and order. You destroy that, then that met word gets out. It has, and you have disaster after disaster, including mayors handing out flyers on borders 
saying, please don't come to my city, go to another city. Yeah. Well, that's not solving the problem. That's just playing whack-a-mole and pushing off to somebody else. Sure. So it's a disaster. The national security implications are real. Uh, the Panamanian government just last week said there are, I think, uh, 9,500 Chinese citizens that are coming through its nation. Uh, why? Well, that's bizarre. Mm. We've seen a dramatic increase of, of Chinese citizens. Who are those folks? Why are they coming? Are they you know, fleeing President Xi? Are they part of some sort of sabotage cell? I don't know. No, nothing is out of the realm of, of crazy at this point. So I think it is bonkers that any country would not have a robust uh, you know, immigration policy with strong borders to decide who comes in and comes out. We can debate how many people should come in and out. Uh, how many people we should allow to become citizens. That's all totally fair and reasonable. But man, if we don't start from a place of, hey, we should control that, then whew, we, we've lost uh, the, yeah. the entire conversation and we're going to lose the country. I, I see where this, I mean, we're it's starting to feel again like the late 70s, early 80s right now, to be honest, because this is how this whole war on drugs bullshit got started. It's like, well, if mm. we can, if we can, you know, find a way to interdict this issue domestically, uh, by interrupting the demand so that bad actors in these countries, these nearby countries, um, aren't in charge of governments either literally or de facto, right? Yeah. Um, uh, through cartels, bribes, and, and, and all the crazy bullshit that goes on like that. Um, yeah. But, I, <laughs> and we do seem to, like American foreign policy, we we have the memory of uh, just a gnat or something. It's like immediately, mm. as soon as we learn a lesson, it's like, oh, that was then, though. That's not now. We're doing, dealing with something different. Right. But I could see this shit coming again, to be honest. I could see it coming mm. again. But the reality of the situation is the only way to get those people to stay where they are and fight back against that bullshit isn't to make drugs or, or whatever, go after domestic users of drugs that shit that we we've seen that that doesn't work you have to mm. they, like they're they it's like cortez burning the ships you know what i mean <laughs> there can't be an option a you have to win your country back that's the way to do mm. it that's the only way to do it right and, it, and so, it, that's so, that's harsh right that's harsh it's harsh to tell a bunch of people who are fleeing cartel violence that you well you can't just come live here you've got to go back there and fight that war it's like cool well we fought for this country against the, yeah. the we a bunch of farmers and 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 uh uh you know uh, well basically mostly farmers uh yeah. fought the largest military empire in the history of the world at the time you know what i mean it, you just have to do it yeah I don't, do we have time to talk to talk about el salvador i don't want to sure. go yeah. beyond yeah so look right now a great example so people talk about this immigration crisis we got to get to the um, root causes and, and fix that, and that'll prevent people from coming. And that's true. Like, you know, it's just the question is how long does that take? You know, 30, 50 plus years, you're going to continue to take uh, migrants in until the root causes get solved. Well, the guy that's leading uh, El Salvador uh, right now, last name of Bukele, you know, people have said uh, he's got a 90% approval rating. He's taken that country from one of the most dangerous to one of the safest. And what he's done is he's locked up over 70,000 uh, Salvadorians who were likely or were gang members. And he has brought peace and stability back to his country. And what we have seen, in fact, the Wall Street Journal just reported, I think it was last week, of, a dramatic decrease of Salvadorians coming across the border. Mm. Well, no shit. You create a country that is now safe and businesses are opening up and houses are becoming uh, you know, back in, in decent shape and kids can play in schools and, and uh, parks. Then people aren't going to want to schlep all the way to the United States for maybe a job or maybe not to deal with coyotes and all the rest that shit they're gonna to want to stay home so 
what he has done is turn that country around. And what's so interesting is that he has done that in some ways by violating some of the, the core tenets of, of uh, you know, the democratic process or judicial process, right? How long you have to wait until you get a lawyer, mm. whether or not you get a fair trial, all that stuff. He's basically, what he's done is he's kind of suspended some of that, a la you know, Abraham Lincoln in some ways, uh, not that they're certainly the same men at all, mm. but there is this idea that if your country is an absolute wreck, for if you're a righteous man or a woman, and you have to suspend some of the things that you want in your country, that degree of freedom and liberty, to just get a hold of the chaos. A guy like Bukele, what he's doing at this moment is he's done that. And he's turned his country around and people aren't leaving. So it, it can be fixed. The, the, the temptation inside any man, Bukele or otherwise, is now that I've got the taste of this power, oh, that's a mighty fine taste. And I'm going to keep it and I'm going to crush all my opposition. I'm going to take over this country and become a dictator. That is the, 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 the great challenge for anybody who decides to go down this path to suspend habeas corpus and other things, to you know, reconstitute uh, you know, decency and law and order. Boy, once you get that taste of uh, true power and ultimate power, you don't want to give it up. Yeah. part of the human condition. I mean, but that was, that I, was I think, uh, Julius yeah. Caesar's thing, right? He, that's what he said he was going to do. Now, they, who knows if he would have given power back after 10 years or whatever, after he yeah. made himself dictator, but... Uh, I guess he never got the chance to do it, but yeah, it is. It's that it's a very interesting conversation to be honest, because um, I don't know. I don't know what the right thing is, but I do know in that scenario. But I do know that uh, one outcome is clearly better than the other, right? Mm. Not not mm. not just now, but long term. Now I'm I'm. Uh, I don't, frankly, no offense, I know you worked there, so did I, but I don't think the federal government should exist in its current form. I think it's mm. just uh, completely polluted. It should, it should be in administrative roles more so than, mm. than what it is. And I think, um, you know, like oh, and during our lifetime, since you and I became professionals, we've seen the largest expansion of the federal government history. <sighs> and it's done nothing yeah. to make us safer. I mean, it's it's just... All, all it's doing is is creating rapid inflation. Basically, I think that's probably the worst yeah. thing it's doing is destroying our our currency, even worse than I think the police state, frankly. But um, there there has mm. to be some kind of interdiction here in these places. And I the temp, there's a, there's also a temptation from our perspective, um, and you know this as an agency guys like, well, how much are we gonna are we gonna go down there and interfere? We're we gonna uh, schwack General Torreo and put Manuel Noriega in power, and then. You know what I mean? It's like, how, how many, how, yeah. can, is there any way that we can be involved in this stuff without it being a complete clusterfuck? Or do you just like, is it two little brothers fighting, right? And you're just yeah. like, go fight. Stay the fuck out of my way. Go figure your shit out. And then once you're done, you can come back to the table. But until then, you're, you're eating in the grass, buddy. Brother, in, in Haiti right now, which that place has always been a crap hole, mm. but uh, uh, in the last six months, Nobody in the international community wants to go in there and try to fix it. There is no functional government anymore. It is Mad Max chaos. And what's happening is once these some of the, the local leaders are like, hey, ain't nobody stepping in this time. We are too far gone. Mm. They've started to create their own militias. And they are starting to start to take back parts of um, Port-au-Prince and other places and, and reconstitute uh, law and order in those particular areas that they can control with their militias. And over time, those militias will start to work together. One will defeat each other. And you will get to a point where one would hope uh, that they, they will find stability because they created it. That from the outside in stuff, you can do it. You know, um, I, I look post-World War II and what the United States did in places like 
United, uh, you know, Germany or mm. Japan. You, you, those are very exceptional and interesting circumstances, and historians can debate how or why those were sex, uh, successful versus other interventions. But the point is, if the local population isn't really interested in the solution you're giving them, such as the United States going into Iraq and trying to create democracy when a lot of those places and tribes were not interested in that stuff, mm. it's going to fail. So let's see in Haiti if they manage to do it and create it. The, the guy in El Salvador, Bukele, he's doing it. Let's see if he goes too far. But I'll tell you, in the case of Bukele, what it's going to take is, just like my high school civics teacher said, eternal vigilance. The guys around him and the gals around him are going to have to be like, bro, you're going too far now. You're, you're getting that taste of power. Before you go Kim Jong-un on us, like, you're out. Mm. And we got to get somebody else in here. Or it's it's now time to reinstitute some of the old republic ideas because you, you, you've tasted this power and and uh, it, it's going to your head. So it just, just creates um, uh, that vigilance um, mm. that if it's gone too far, maybe you take some of these extreme measures and then you crack down. Um, one final quick piece, uh, I'll toss out again, I wanna be respectful of time. Sure. But you mentioned since uh, you and I became professionals, the, the size expansion of the, of the country, uh, I should say the government, and really the authorities mm. of the government to do different things. And what happens when that expands and there's no real oversight? So at the FBI, for instance, you should have a degree of oversight from the Senate and the House, they're supposed to be doing that. But here about two months ago, we had this special counsel's report that showed that the, the FBI displayed for over five years, uh, when James Comey was uh, the, uh, the director and sense, a lack, a, a lack of strict fidelity to the law, right? Those were the words that uh, the special counsel used. Well, that's kind of a big deal. If the FBI, which is supposed to be the senior law enforcement uh, agency in the country, they lack a strict fidelity to the law, like, okay. Maybe we want to ring the bell on this and figure out, like, uh, we got a problem. We got to fix something here because that ain't right. Um, so I think that you're starting to see the manifestations of this massive increase in size, increase of power. It's going to be corrupted or it will corrupt good people. Um, and then you layer on top of that a lack of real thoughtful oversight by these clowns on Capitol Hill who really don't know what they're doing. Or that some 25-year-old kid who's a staffer who's providing oversight. Like, mm. come on. You know, everybody else is trying to raise cash because they're a congressman or senator mm -hmm. for the reelection campaign. I worked on Capitol Hill a bit, for, so I know how this works. Anyway, it's you're, you're absolutely right. We need to, to downsize the power, the budgets, the, the personnel. It's way too big. They've gotten way out of hand. And we have some good evidence to show that is true. These special counsels, the inspector general, his report, Horowitz on James Comey and what that guy mm -hmm. did. So, yeah, I, I, it's not just an opinion you're floating out there, man. There are some really good smart people who created some very thoughtful multi-hundred page reports saying we got a problem and it's very serious well you know the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants right i don't think that was meant to be a literal allegory for war or anything like mm -hmm. that um, but it's certainly what it does play into that you know eternal vigilance thing um so Thanks for coming on today to talk about this stuff. It, I think it always helps people to be able to contextualize some of these things. And, you know, if it is indeed the case that the healing process includes um, talking to our neighbors again, having the right ideas and words to use in that conversation, I think it's super important. So I appreciate you coming on today. You bet, brother. What a, what a treat. This is a blast. Yeah, thanks for coming in. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen.